0: Hi friends, I'm Blue Mitchell, photographer, publisher, and now podcaster. You're listening to The Diffusion Tapes, a podcast where I chat with photographers, curators, and writers working in the field of fine art photography. More specifically, these tapes are conversations with people I've befriended on my journey as an artist and publisher. So now I get to learn a little more about these folks that I admire and respect, and I'm inviting you into our conversation. Welcome to The Diffusion Tapes. Well, hello again, friends. Man, it's been a challenging time getting these tapes edited and released for you all. A big thanks goes out to you that are actually sticking around here and listening to me on this journey. Back in March of this year, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Mike Sakazagawa while he was in Portland attending a writer's conference. I became aware of Mike a few years back because of his own podcast called Keep the Channel Open, where he primarily converses with photographers and writers, but also other artists. Mike has featured quite a few guests that I've worked with over the years in Diffusion and other projects, so if you haven't discovered it yet, dive into that catalog. It's robust. In fact, as of this recording, he has released 100 episodes. In our conversation, we talk about his work, the authenticity of photography, his podcasting projects, his progression as a photographer, writer, and activist. And of course, we had to dissect his famous viral Lemon video. So one of the things you'll discover about Mike is that he really does have a great radio voice. Let's take a listen. I'm in Portland here with Mike Sakasagawa. It's a treat to have you on here, considering (laughs) that I was a guest on your podcast. Mike's in town for a conference, and, and we decided to get together and flip the... What is it, flip the table, flip the chair? That's the saying. (laughs) So now Mike's in the hot seat instead of me, which I I like. like. So what are you in town for?
1: I'm I'm in town for the AWP conference, uh, which is a big writer's conference. I've never been to it before, so I'm interested to see what that's like. Um, But I just thought as long as I was up here, it's such a, I feel like this is a good photo town too. So I'm hoping that I get to, to look around a little bit while I'm here. Yeah, yeah. See Charles Hartman, maybe go yeah. there, or the Portland Art Museum. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, great. Blue Sky.
0: Oh yeah, of course you got to yeah. see Blue Sky. So, are you just a participant in the conference?
1: Yeah, just an attendee. Yeah. I'm just sort of a spectator. Maybe in the future, I'll I'll see if I can get myself onto a panel or something like that. So. Nice, nice.
0: So what's what's the focus of the conference?
1: I mean, it's like basically all things writing. You know, writing craft, writing uh, networking, um, you know, presentations by different small presses. And I mean, the, the kinds of, the panels go all over the place from stuff like, um, you know, how to survive your debut year as a novelist to, mm-hmm. um, you know, writing from trauma or, you know, there are a bunch of different, um, ones that, uh, different friends of mine are doing that are sort of like one of my, one of my friends that I'm, I'm hoping to get to see her panel. She's doing one that's all about um, writing as an immigrant. There should be a lot of interesting stuff. But, uh, you know, also for me, it's just a big thing. It's the same thing with photo festivals. It's really just like a chance to sort of put a face to all the names that I know. and oh, sure. You know, because I've gotten to talk to a lot of writers for my show. Mm-hmm. And I've never met almost any of them in person. The photographers, I actually have met a fair number now right. in person because of Medium. But, or, or other just photo stuff happening in San Diego. But the uh, the writers are sort of San Diego has a, a, a literary scene, but um, it's a, that that tends to be a lot more concentrated in like New York. New York, yeah, and, makes sense. Yeah,
0: well, that's nice. So you get that opportunity at this event.
1: Yeah, yeah, it should be fun.
0: Attend so. Besides your friends' panel, is there another event that you're most looking forward to?
1: I don't know. I don't know. There's one. Of, it, it's all. It's all really fo- for me focused around like getting to see people i have met before haven't met but want to Hmm. um there's going to be this after um like off-site event where they're going to be doing literary karaoke so that should Uh, be fun
0: interesting i've never heard of that
1: yeah how how do they do that it's going to be like they're gonna i think what it is is that they're they're having like eight or ten authors and they're each going to do like a five minute reading but then they're also going to sing Oh, <laughs> so. nice. It sounds fun. Yeah.
0: It sounds very Portland to do something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, good. Welcome to Portland, right? Keep, yeah. keep Portland weird. I'm going to jump around sure. your timeline a bit, but you, you were talking about the, the podcast. Um, so I want to start there because, number one, we're doing a podcast and you're a podcaster. So this mm-hmm. is my first opportunity to actually talk to a podcaster about podcasting sure (laughs) so i'm curious number one the title of your podcast is is keep the channel open Mm -hmm. and you you're focused on photography and and writing and other arts Mm -hmm. um and you talk to to writers photographers curators um it's a it's a large gamut so i'm curious what made you decide to make that the focus of your podcast like how did you get to that point where you wanted to to do such a nice like arts podcast well
1: um it's funny i had this funny experience where you know the majority of the people that i talk to are either photographers or writers and i do talk to painters and curators and other other artists as well but it's it's primarily photographers and writers and the funniest thing to me is that when uh photo people talk about my show the the, a lot of times they'll describe it as a photography show and when um literary people talk about my show a lot of times they'll describe it as a literary show um
0: (laughs) So you're living in two worlds here. Yeah,
1: and I get sometimes people ask me like, well, just like why why is your show so broad, mm-hmm. and why why not just focus on one or the other? I'm for me, it's a couple of different things. Part of it is that in my own creative practice, I'm engaging with multiple disciplines. Mm-hmm. You know, like I am a writer and I'm also a photographer, and like as I was showing you before now, I'm also doing art books and you know handmade artist books and other things as well. I'm sure that at some point I'm going to branch out. I have this sort of, um, I don't know. It's, it's not exactly a lack of attention span because these things tend to take about five years at a time, but, but I, I tend to, to go in, in cycles with these things, but I wanted to be able to on my show, be able to talk to people who are working in spaces that I'm working in Mm -hmm. as well as spaces that I'm not working in because Like I wanted to be able to do things that were sort of engaging my entire creative life in all its different facets, but then also things that I don't do. Like I've I've never really been much of a painter or a drawing or things like that. And I always find those things so impressive and kind of intimidating too. Mm -hmm. Like whenever I have to talk to a painter, I I always get really nervous because I feel like I don't know anything about painting. (laughs) What am I going to talk to this person about? Yeah, Yeah. But it's just so impressive to me, you know. But I I had this idea early on that there's something sort of common to different creative um, endeavors that even though we're working in different mediums, that there's something about the need to be expressive and the need to do that through some form of craft that even if it expresses in different ways that underneath it all there is some fundamental drive that's common. And I I like talking to people about that kind of thing. I I try to always, you know, whoever I'm talking to, I'm trying to approach it on a similar level. Uh, I don't know how well I achieve it, but it's that's the goal, right? Oh yeah. So you've done
0: the podcast for three years, right? Yeah, it's been three years. So, well, is it over three years?
1: Yeah. Well, I started in January of 2016. Okay. And you have
0: eighty some odd. How many episodes? Yeah, I think
1: I just released eighty five yesterday. Yeah, eighty
0: five episodes in three years. Pretty impressive. Since you've done so many, do you see some common themes that keep? coming up in your in your discussions?
1: Well, I mean, I think part of this has to do with the way that I pick who I'm going to talk to, mm. you know, because I, I don't know if it's necessarily the case that that everyone, you know, is going to have necessarily a through line or a common thread in that way. I mean, I think maybe they do, but it might be hard for me to get at sometimes. Sure. Um, but I'm always picking uh, – like, just recently I was talking – with a photographer and I was sort of introducing myself to her out at an opening and she asked what kinds of photographers I like to talk to. And I, oh. I said that that's a good question. It's something that um, was timely too, because I hadn't really thought about it much for the first couple of years I was doing it. But I do find that I'm, I tend to be interested in talking to people who have a relatively conceptual approach to the art form that, even though there are a lot of types of photography that are not necessarily conceptual or not, or that the people who make it wouldn't think of themselves as conceptual photographers. Like a lot of street photographers, for example, tend not to think of themselves as conceptual. Right. Even yeah. if they are, there might be a strong concept to their work. And I love street photography, but I tend to find that I have a hard time talking about it in an, in an intelligent way. Sure, yeah. So people who are approaching their work in sort of a more like intentionally conceptual way it tends to be the kinds of conversations that are easier for me to have. Right. Right. Well, that's smart. So, you're,
0: you're talking about things that you are, are comfortable with talking about. Yeah. Is there, <laughs> just going, Oh, right. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> oh, know I and quit, and next that, question. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. Did Chris Farley, <laughs> Paul McCartney thing. You ever see that on Saturday Night Live? I don't know. Oh, me. he had this, it was, it was just the most excruciating thing. It's Chris Farley the Chris Farley show and he's interviewing Paul McCartney and all right. he keeps saying is, uh, so what's oh. it like to be so awesome?
0: That's right. I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so the name of your podcast, where'd you come up with the name?
1: I actually can't read this passage that was before I even thought of having a show. I just really liked it as a statement on creativity. Hmm. So Agnes DeMille who I believe was a choreographer and uh, like theater director. Okay. Uh, she was the, the director of the original run of Oklahoma, I believe. Um, she had a biography of Martha Graham, who obviously she's also a very famous choreographer and director. The, line, the title of my show comes from this line of Martha Graham's, as reported by Agnes DeMille. The two of them were, I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I, <laughs> I don't have the, have it. I should memorize it. I mean, it, it's a great passage, and I actually have it in the uh, About page of of the Keep the Channel Open website. Oh, right. But basically, Agnes Dimmel, she was talking to Martha Graham about Oklahoma, which had just opened, and she was talking about how she really just couldn't watch it. She just hated it. And she was talking about how she felt so discontent with it and how all she could see in it was the flaws because she had this idea of what she wanted it to be. And it wasn't that because it, it fell short of what she wanted it to be. And Martha Graham basically said, well, all artists feel like that. We all feel unsatisfied with our Mm. work. And Agnes DeMille says something along the lines well, am, am I, am I not supposed to be ever satisfied? and, and, Martha Graham says, no, you're never supposed to be satisfied. You're always going to have this, I think she called it a divine discontent and a blessed unrest, Mm -hmm. and that your job as an artist isn't to say whether the work is good or bad. Your job is to just keep the channel open, to keep yourself open to it and honest and just keep working. Um, And I just thought that was such an inspiring way of looking at it, because I... Hate my own work. <laughs> I, I've finally come to the point where, with my with my own work, um, you know, once I finish a series, and you know, I have some series now that I've been done with for several years. I can finally sort of come back to it, and it's not it's not excruciating. Oh right! But um, especially if I try to read my old writing, it's just like the worst. <laughs> I hate it so much. It makes me so uncomfortable. Sure. Um, and some of the things that are like I had published maybe four or five years ago. I just uh, – some of my I actually had to ask to have them taken down because they were so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are
0: our own worst critic, right? Yeah. Now. Well, and it's with, with photography. I feel like with writing, you can sort of – you can nitpick it a little more mm. um, than you can in photography. I mean, you, of course, you can in photography, but yeah. I feel like there's there's more concrete things that you could
1: analyze in the words and, and the way you're using your words. Yeah. I feel like what writing does uh, that – I spent a lot of time trying to think about what writing and photography do differently, like Mm. what their strengths are. Like, cause a lot of my work, it involves bringing those two things together in a way that hopefully is harmonious. But so I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what can you do with this and what can you do with this and what can't you do with either one? And I feel like what writing really does well is specificity that writing allows you to just say a thing and you've said it right Right. whereas like with photography you can only sort of suggest things i feel like i mean which seems really backwards i think to people who are not necessarily um as acquainted with photographs like most people tend to think of the photograph is the thing is yeah exactly right but i think you know as the artist what we know is that the photograph is not the thing and it never is the thing. and never could be the thing, but it suggests the thing. Right? right. And so for me, if I'm trying to take, if I'm trying to describe an emotion, I can do that with writing or I can do it with a photograph, but I have to come at it in a photograph. If I'm trying to photograph an emotion, since it's not visible, you have to kind of come at it at an angle. Right. And you kind of have to, the photograph sort of leads you there, but you have to make the jump yourself where with writing, you can just say the, the emotion, you know, right. and describe it very, mm-hmm. you know, you can describe the interior of someone's mind and heart. You can't do that with a photograph, which uh, interestingly to me, I think that a lot of times the photograph allows you to have a more profound, um, there's something I think more immediate if sort of paradoxically about the emotional experience of a photograph, because once you've made that leap yourself as the viewer, then you feel it directly instead of having to parse it through understanding, you know, right. understanding in oh, yeah, language. Sure. And part of why maybe this is why you don't like your work in
0: hindsight sometimes is is because uh, there's this looseness to photography where it can be interpreted in different ways depending on whatever lens that you come at it with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought that's why I've always liked about photography is that you, or any art for that matter, um, painting or not, um, visual art that... Because the the person brings their own experience to those things, mm-hmm. and, and with writing, you still bring out your own experience and how you're interpreting maybe a fiction, how you're interpreting the story, and how you visualize things. You know, it could be much different from how your your neighbor visualizes the same you know passage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is why so many people get mad when a movie comes out based off a book and the characters don't line up with what they imagined. <laughs> right, so that becomes a problem for people, and then they discount it. You know, so which is. It's, It's pretty hard to be successful in that way, right? Yeah. (laughs) As a movie maker, like, there's going to be people you piss off. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, there's going to be people you piss off no matter what. I mean, I've had people get pissed off at me for things that I've done as a photographer or a writer. A lot of things for me with my earlier writing that I tend to find the most embarrassing is, uh, interestingly, photography has sort of led me to being, I think, a better writer in this way, that my older writing tends to be about things that I think, hmm. you know, like, I think this, I think the world is this way, or I think people are like this. And those tend not to age very well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the things that you think when you're, you know, 22, or is not necessarily the same things that you think when you're 32. Right, right. But once I sort of hit on the idea that I'm taking photographs of my own emotions, I'm sort of trying to express my feelings through the photographs. Once I start doing that with the, the writing, which was something I had to kind of mature into, I think, hmm. I might not feel the same way as I did when I was describing my feeling before, right. um, you know, five, ten years ago. But I can still recognize that that feeling was a valid feeling, you know, for right. that time in my right. life. And that's easier for me, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, that comes with any even memory, you know, thinking about how you felt in a certain situation. Think, oh, gosh, I was so young and dumb or, you know, yeah. or, you know, I was naive or uh, because you you get life experience and you go through different things. You think you know, things do change, you know, mm-hmm. but um, being able to recognize that that was valid. And also it helps you. I mean, this is a good segue. It helps you as a parent. Um, yeah. Looking at your kids going through some of the stuff that you went through growing up. I read your artist statement earlier today for All Good Things, okay. and it starts out, someday I will die. And it. I, I had to chuckle when I read that, but it was also <laughs> like, it was almost so sort of like being stabbed a little bit in the heart at the same time. You say, someday I will die, and then you go on to illustrate how having kids make you more aware of the passage of time. Yeah. And even without looking at the work, just reading your artist statement, I had such a familiarity to me as a father and I'm going through the same kind of emotions of, you know, I didn't think about the fact that I will die and really that much. It wasn't really on my mind as much as it has been since I've had kids and I don't really understand exactly why that's happening yeah. um, but I did like that you were talking about how you're more aware of the passage of time because you see your kids growing up and there's so many significant changes as you're watching them. Um, just and, and so I'm curious, did you start that series with that in mind, or is that something that just kind of came about as you were, as you were shooting?
1: Um, so one thing for me is that I, I can never shoot to a brief, you know, like I never start with a concept, Sure. Um, which is, it's another thing that I'm, I'm often very envious of people who hmm. can, who can right. just sort of come up with an idea and then just make it happen. To me, that just seems like magic, you know, <laughs> like being able to just, to invent is something that I've always been very jealous of. I, I don't, I, I, sometimes I say I'm not very imaginative because I don't, or creative because I'm not, I feel like I'm more responding to things that I see rather than creating things. Sure. It's a creative response though. Yeah. I, well, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say that if, if I have any talent as anything, as a writer or, or as a photographer or any kind of artist, that it's a talent for, for, being able to observe things and explain them to you, explain them to the audience. Mm -hmm. I started shooting those pictures, you know, like everybody takes pictures of their kids. Right. And sort of like we were saying, I was saying to you before we started rolling that at the beginning when I was taking pictures, I was really mostly just trying to take pictures that were pretty. And so I would copy different lifestyle or wedding or event photographers, what their style was. And, what I found was that I started getting really attracted to this sort of um, portrait and event photographers who aim for a more quote-unquote photojournalistic style. I mean, I'm, you know, I think there's probably lots of people who have opinions about photojournalistic weddings or whatever, but, <laughs> but it was just, um, it was interesting because people like, I don't know how you pronounce his name, I think his name is Jeff Askoff. He's this English wedding photographer who, mm. I don't know if he was calling himself this or if somebody else called him this and then he made it part of his marketing, but he was calling him, himself the uh, Cartier-Bresson of wedding photographers. Oh, my. Which is, that's pretty <laughs> grandiose. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I I doubt he came up with that on his own. Sure. Um, but his, his photographs do have this sort of reportage kind of decisive moment feeling to them. Mm. And that sort of led me into, you know, trying my hand at street photography and that and then taking those principles and applying them to the photographs I was taking of my kids, what I found was that I was really interested in trying to capture moments that felt authentic. Mm. I remember so I I started showing those photographs at reviews at the very first medium festival, which was in 2012. So I'd been working on this this series for about two years by that point. And the problem was, and actually one of the people that really helped me with this was Aline Smithson. Mm. She's she's really great in a review. Yeah, if you yeah. ever get the chance to have her review your work, she's, she's very sharp uh, and very helpful. I thought what I was doing at the time was that I was trying to describe their existence you know that i was trying to describe childhood and it took me a long time to to realize that that wasn't what i was doing at all and in some ways i don't know if i ever could or anyone could ever really do that you know like how can you really fully describe someone else's existence i don't know if you can do that Photography always has that sort of promise of being able to deliver that, but I think we all know it can't, you know? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, cat's out of the (laughs) bag. But I I realized after a while that what I was doing was that I would see things that my kids would do these little sort of tableaus or little moments and that I would feel sort of drawn to make a photograph, and that that pull to make the photograph was happening along a pretty narrow range of emotional experiences on my part. Sure. So. Well, so does it feel like it's more about you than it really is about Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it, it took me a while to realize, too, that what I'm always trying to do now with my photographs is in all of it, whether it's the more abstract things or whether it's the more um, sort of naturalistic straight photos. Right what i'm trying to do more than anything else is to put the viewer in my shoes is to try and show the viewer exactly what i see right. and hopefully by doing that and presenting it in the right context that they will also feel what i felt and you know obviously that's a that's a tall order <laughs> but, <laughs> sure but i know that it's happened at least a few times you know because i've had people come up and talk to me after after seeing my photographs and and they really seem to connect on the same level that i that I did that's a really powerful experience, oh yeah, for sure, yeah yeah, and there's always the, um, certain
0: images that really stand out for certain people and a lot of times that's because of their their personal experience you know mm-hmm. whether it's as the kid you know experiencing it or as a you know an onlooker or whatever but also in that series, well probably in your your work in general, but there's this you said you're reacting mm-hmm. and I think that's That's interesting, but you're also composing. So there's this reaction, but there's also this, you know, there's a bit of an objective in the way you're composing stuff as well. So you don't see in that frame that you're shooting, right? Right. I guess what I'm getting at is it's... I think you're downplaying the creativity involved with what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe,
1: yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what I... I can't remember who said it, but I think probably a lot of people have said it. But I remember reading once somebody saying that photography is is actually a process of erasure Hmm. and, like, selection. Sure. So something that I've always been really good at is being able to focus in, no pun intended, (laughs) (laughs) being able to really sort of narrow my focus down, whether that be just my attention or my sort of sensory, like if I'm listening to something or looking at something to really be able to just hone in and sort of ignore everything else. I remember this used to get me in trouble sometimes with my mom, cause I would be reading and I would be reading so intently that I would just completely lose track of everything else that was happening around me and like I'd be reading in my bedroom with the door closed and my mom would come in and start talking to me and I wouldn't realize that she was there until she was screaming at me and then she'd be like why are you ignoring me wow <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: very focused yeah
1: <laughs> and I think that there is something about that with the photographs as well that I'll I'll notice some detail and I'm able to really focus in on that one detail you know, like I really, I would, I would really admire other people's family images. You know, like if I would look at, um, like Blake Andrews's family pictures, where there's just like shit happening everywhere. Right. You know, yeah. like there's just like stuff all over the frame, right? right. <laughs> and like I have never been able to really pull that off. You know, mm-hmm. and I think it just has to do with the way that I see things. You know, because right. I tend to really focus in on like one thing at a time. Yeah. Yeah, if I can if I can actually achieve some kind of a layering in my photographs, I feel really proud of myself. Well, that that brings up
0: another point, and this is a whole other subject, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Sure. <laughs> so you're talking about this idea of you being attracted and focusing on one one kind of small thing, but. To me, it kind of lends to the sort of like meditative sensibility, um, which I see throughout everything that I've seen of yours, Mm -hmm. both in writing and in photography, but also in short videos about lemons rolling down the hill. (laughs) So so you, I have to talk about this because it's so (laughs) intriguing and it's you videotaped a lemon rolling down a hill which was how long how long was the it it was uh
1: about a minute i think maybe a minute and a half maybe okay. 2 minutes i can't remember okay it was long for an internet video
0: right <laughs> yeah very long for yeah. an internet video so so tell me about it this thing went viral yeah so how did that happen i mean what how did a lemon rolling down the hill so it was in a curb kind of in a gutter Explain yeah. the
1: video a little bit so i i was um i do this thing where, you know, I actually haven't in a while because I messed up my leg, but I would go for a run three times a week in the mornings. Mm. And I found it a really nice way to start the morning and just sort of clear my head. And, you know, when you're running, like I can't think about complicated things when I'm like breathing really hard. (laughs) (laughs) But I would have this little exercise I would do for myself, which is that, you know, I always run the same route. I always stop at exactly the same place. And between the end of my run and my front door, I would make an exercise where, like, so I think it's a it's a maybe a third of a mile total okay. to, of a walk from from those two points. I would make myself make a photograph, and it's just so, like with my phone, just put it on Instagram. I'm not really doing anything with these. I might someday because a lot of times that happens. Like, I'll just realize like, oh, I've got something here, and maybe I'll make something out mm-hmm. of it. But yeah. the idea was just that I wanted to sort of focus in on this really limited physical space to force myself to look more closely Mm. and find things that were interesting or that would catch my eye. And maybe it might be, you know, I I have a lot of pictures of flowers. I have a lot of pictures and, you know, where it'll be like the same place over and over again, the same spot, Mm -hmm. maybe at different times of the year. I find something really interesting about that. And so I, I was coming home, um, this one day and I had just come around the corner at the, I live on a Hill and I live like right at the middle of this Hill. Mm. And I was just coming down the top of the hill and I was just in that mode of looking around and I happened to see this lemon rolling across the street. And I was like, why is there a lemon rolling across my street? So no people around? Just no, around. there was nobody. And <laughs> I finally figured it out because there was actually, it must have just fallen off of this tree oh. that is at the top of this hill and rolled down. It rolled across the street in front of me. And so I started following it and I just wanted to see how far it would go. So I started videoing it mm. and I just followed it and... I thought that it would stop pretty quickly because there was a car right in the way. And I thought, oh, it'll just run into that car tire. And then, you know, I'll have 10 right. seconds of video. But it kept, it like sort of dodged the car and, <laughs> you know, um, just kept going until it got all the way to the bottom of the hill. It was about a quarter mile. Hmm. And, you know, as to why that went viral, I don't think you can really explain it, right? It's sort of things just sort of happen. Did I you kn- post it on your Instagram? I did post it on Instagram, but it actually didn't... Um, Instagram limits you to one minute, so, oh, right, yeah. so I couldn't get the full video in there. But I put it on Facebook and Twitter, and this is just, like, what I do, right? I'm right. just on social media, probably more than is healthy, but I just put everything out there. Right. And so this video wasn't, like, unusual for me. Like, I post things all the time, like maybe other short videos of, like, a, you know... It's sort of a cliche, but it's like, you know, like I'm like that American beauty kid, you know, <laughs> like if I happened to see a paper bag flying around in the air, right. I probably would take a video of right, it. But right. like for me, it was a lemon that one day. <laughs> and I do this all the time and most of them get like 30 views and then move on. Right. I think what people, you know, when people talked to me about it, they would talk about it having a sort of a narrative to it and having this sort of drama. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would say they were rooting for the lemon. Right, right. Because it does have this thing where, you know, because I didn't mean to do this, but just the angle that it's shooting, it it doesn't seem like it's rolling down a hill. It just seems like it's It's just rolling, rolling flat. Right. And it sort of starts to slow down a few times and then picks up speed again. Right. Right. um, For some reason, a lot of people think that there are piles of pennies lying around in my gutter, but uh, those aren't pennies. They're leaves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It made it past the pennies. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Sometimes when some people used to get, like, at the beginning, people were getting really mad at me because, like, I'd have, like, that thing has something like 80,000 replies to it or something, and and I can't respond to all of them. Right. It's it's like... (laughs) But peop- a couple of people were like, stop ignoring me. Where are their pennies? And they're like, I don't- they're not pennies. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> interesting. <laughs> wow, people really got worked out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what I think so curious about it is, you know, like you said, there's no way to know like why these things go viral. But And everybody, you know, you mentioned that people were rooting for the lemon. Um, but one of the things that I really thought was interesting, maybe it was like a narrative. There wasn't this narrative feel to it, but it also had that that kind of meditative effect too and, and just maybe not even that but more like the simplicity you know just and kind of like it, to me it wraps up kind of what you do in general with your with your photography and the nice bow with this lemon rolling down the hill because it's like echoing kind of what you, the way you see in mm-hmm. a way you know it's like Everybody got to see your lemon so they know what you're all about, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like you want to look at your, your CV, you just show them the lemon video. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should do that. I do think, you know, it's very, it is the kind of thing that I would be attracted to. I think when, when my wife first saw the video, like she was like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's what that's you, you look at. That's, mm-hmm. that's what you, what you like. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, like later that evening, it, it was when we noticed that it started to, take off and we're like what is happening i don't know <laughs> yeah it was it was very unexpected and you know not real much really tangibly came out of it but but uh just the f- the
0: phenomena of the whole virus the virus <laughs> <laughs> you infected people like, yeah <laughs> and i just think the whole phenomenon around it it's just amazing to me and that you know there's there's many examples of that just just the lemon thing is, is so interesting to me yeah. it reminds me of as a kid and i just did this with my kids the other day making little boats out of bark or or sticks and throwing them in the water and then mm-hmm. like rooting for them as they go down the river yeah. and, you know hopefully you, sometimes they go so far you don't see them it's like oh you know success you know they get excited but you know or there's eddies that trap them or they they tip over or whatever mm. so it's the same kind of concept but it was uh accidental which, yeah which i think is great about it. it's like no i didn't put the lemon in the gutter it, you know i just yeah. saw it and shot you know and i think that that's what's so great about it
1: yeah a lot uh, this kind of stuff just kind of happens to me where i just i just noticed things um i think i've sort of gotten to the point where i've Mainly because of the photography that I've just sort of trained myself to just always be looking around, it can be a little irritating sometimes if like I'm walking around and you know sometimes I might like maybe my wife and I will be on a date and we'll be walking, and I'll say, hang on a second and I' have to like kneel down and take a picture of something <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> she's used to it at this point, but uh you know she's she's very uh forgiving and tolerant of my quirks right <laughs> right, right yeah, that's
0: great. Let's back up a little bit. So tell me, you went to school for engineering, correct? Yep, that's so, right. And that's what you do for a day job now? Yep, that's it. Well, what kind of engineering?
1: Well, so I'm an electrical engineer. Electrical engineer. Yeah, and I, I work on chips that go in cell phones. Uh, my title is, uh, I think if you wanted my title, I'm a staff ASIC design engineer. Hmm. But I don't know if that would be super meaningful to the listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, I'll Google that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Did your experience in engineering, did that have anything to do with your interest in, in the other things that you're doing? Because they seem so opposite, right? Writing. Um, maybe the podcast is more related because there's some technical to that.
1: You know, I don't think they're very related, I'm except insofar as I think both of those things sort of spring from a, a similar place, but I don't think one leads to the other. Mm-hmm. Rather just that ever since I was a little kid, I've been very interested in how things work Hmm. and in, you know, sort of taking things apart and focusing on details. And I think my mom has these stories of me as a little boy, when I just constantly be taking things apart and breaking them, (laughs) but, but, you know, with the intention of, I'll put this back together, together. but I wasn't able to. Right. But (laughs) Um, you're trying to see how it works. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I think that having that same impulse to sort of look underneath rocks or, you know, take apart the... my. I remember when I was like eight, my grandpa gave me this old broken um, stereo receiver that he had. Mm. And he just said, here, take this apart. And <laughs> it was great. Nice, so, But, you know, wanting to see the insides of things or, you know, wanting to sort of figure things out. And I, I have been a very curious person for, I think, my whole life. Sure. So I think that, that you know, the the engineering science side of myself sort of comes from that in the same way that now the photography and writing and stuff do. You know, when I was a kid, it's funny, by the time I was in high school and definitely by the time I was in college, everybody sort of knew me as a math and science guy. Mm. But when I was a little kid, I remember I always thought of myself first as a reader and I remember when I was in fifth grade, I got a little plaque for, for best math achievement or something. And I was like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not a math person. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a reading person. How come he got the reading plaque? I should have oh, gotten the reading plaque. <laughs> yeah. Especially it was my, my friend, my best friend at the time, he got the reading plaque and he was, he was upset because he was like, I'm better at math than you. Why didn't I get the math? plaque?" Oh, Interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I, By the time I was older, I tended to think of myself as, like, a non-creative person. I tended to think of myself as a, I'm a math person, I'm Mm -hmm. a science person. Even though, like, I always did creative stuff. I Like, I did a lot of theater when I was in high school and college. And I did choir when I was in high school and college. Um, I took a media studio class that was involved photography, but it was making, um, like, narrative multimedia slideshows when I was in college. And I had a lot of fun with that. But I always just sort of thought that as on the side at the time. It wasn't really until I had kids that I really started thinking of it as something I do. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The same with the writing, is that Yeah. I mean I like I say, I've I've you know, I was an early reader and I've been reading as long as I can remember. Sure. Part of that was always that I I kinda wanted to be involved in doing things like that, but it took me a really long time to figure out what kinds of writing I am actually good at oh sure you know like i really have i'm i'm working towards it but so far I, my attempts at fiction have been very unsuccessful but you know doing essays especially personal writing mm-hmm. um i i can manage that pretty well and sure. i'm sort of working my way towards poetry but again, that that kind of gets back to that same thing about, like, it's easier for me to observe and, and then, like, sort of explain things rather than to just sort of invent things. Sure. That well, so, makes sense. Yeah. So you studied engineering in college. Mm-hmm. Did, when did you meet your wife? Uh, we started dating when I was a senior in high school. She was oh, a junior. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we met the year before that. Yeah. We were in a... My my high school's production of Little Shop of Horrors.
0: Nice. <laughs> so, That's a nice story to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What then, parts were
1: you playing? Uh, she was actually the stage manager, and oh, okay. then she was an understudy for one of the duop girls, and oh, I wow. was I was Seymour.
0: You were Seymour. Well,
1: the thing is, is that when you're in high school uh, theater, um, there are all uh, usually about five to ten times as many girls as boys. Oh, yeah. So the boys can pretty much have the, their pick of whatever part they want. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So you got Seymour. Wow. Yeah. That's fun. Um, Did you guys get married right away or when did you get married?
1: Uh, We got married uh, almost immediately after she graduated from college. So actually it was about a year after that, but like I proposed to her right after she graduated from college. Okay. Yeah. And what does she do? She, uh, well, right now she is a life coach. She was Mm -hmm. a teacher. Um, She was an elementary school teacher for a while. Nice. Uh, Probably about 10 years altogether uh, at different schools. And, um, then when we had kids, she decided to stay home and then she did that for a while. And now that the kids are getting a little older, she's branching out into new things. She's got this really great life coaching business that she started and she's, uh, she's really great at the, like something people will tell you when, when you talk to her is that like, she really gives you Her attention, you know, Mm. like you feel like she's listening to you. So she's—I think she's a real natural for the coaching Yeah, Yeah. that'd have
0: to be like a a requirement to be a life coach, right? Yeah. Well, if you can listen and absorb and then work with people in that way, yeah, being able to really hear them, right? Yeah, Uh, and not coming to to the table with like preconceived scripts Mm -hmm. on how you're going to help somebody. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's nice. So you have three kids. Three kids. What are the ages? Ten, seven, and four. and 7, and 4. Yeah. And when you're shooting the kids and their environments, how do they react to that? Do they care about what you're doing? I mean, do they do they have any input uh, at the final product of your photography?
1: Well, you know, I started taking those pictures when my son, my oldest, was like 2, hmm. and he didn't really have a lot of understanding of what was happening. Right. I should say I, I haven't added anything to that series in quite a long time. It's probably been... Maybe two or three, maybe four years. Hmm. I think that my youngest is a baby in the most recent ones of those. So she's four now. She's going to be five this summer. It is an interesting thing. You know, they didn't have a lot of input. It's not like I was ever hiding it from them. You know, like they knew that I was taking pictures. Right. But it wasn't like I would ask them to perform for the camera. Right. um, Except for like there's one, there's like one picture, like maybe one or two pictures in there where my son is definitely posing and you can tell that he's posing, hmm. but for the most part, they're kind of doing whatever, you right. know, I think that my kids, I've tried to involve them in the project and sort of explain to them what the project is and why I want to take the pictures. Um, and they've seen all of the pictures for mm-hmm. sure, but it is something on my mind a lot because I think there's something valuable about, expressing these emotions of parenthood, especially because the way that we talk about parenthood in our culture is not always very representative of what the experience is actually like. Right. So for me, I want to try and talk about these emotions that are not uniformly positive, you know, like, I don't talk necessarily about in my images that I'm not necessarily expressing things like frustration or things like that. I do talk about that in the artist statement, Mm -hmm. but you know, for me, the experience of being a parent is very bittersweet. Right. And that's what I'm trying to put in the, in the images at the same time. I also have to sort of reckon with the idea that, you know, I'm using other people to tell my story. You know, I'm using other people to to convey something about myself. And I think that there is something that's sort of necessarily fraught about that. Hmm. It's, it's definitely something that's been on my mind to what extent can my children as children consent in a meaningful way to being, to participating in this project, Right. which I think is part of the reason why I haven't been taking those pictures as much anymore. Also just as time has gone by and the distance between 2010 and now doesn't feel like a lot but it also feels like a lot because I, like my four-year-old knows a lot more about pictures and how they happen and the fact that like every time you see it it's like, can i see can i see right, you know, yeah. um when my son was four it was he wasn't quite it, it wasn't quite as ubiquitous at the time right yeah
0: i think that yeah, i can relate to that with the with the kids and how they mature and how things change but it's that what you mentioned in your artist statement about the, the passage of time with mm-hmm. the kids, I feel like I'm in the same, in the same boat in, in feeling that there's this, suddenly there's this timeline mm-hmm. associated with having kids, which like 10 years prior to that, it was all mixed up for me. Mm-hmm. But the 10 years since I, you know, well, my kids aren't 10 yet, but you know, in that time period, every year has gone by so fast, but yet I, I have a, a much more vivid timeline in my memory. And maybe that's because I, take tons of photos right yeah <laughs> but I feel like it's there's so much changing and so much going on during those time periods where and things are more emotional and and there's lots of ups and downs and being a parent and you know with your relationships and even with family and dynamics with friends and you know the whole thing changes when you have kids and using the art as sort of a, a therapy I use it I say that a lot in my podcast actually about art therapy mm-hmm. is what we do I think that rings true and when you're addressing topics of
1: fatherhood or yeah. you know, being a parent. I do think that there's, uh, I've had, I've seen some people sort of push back on the idea mm-hmm. that like art and therapy are not the same thing. And I, I, I get what they're saying. I think that that's like, if you need therapy, then just having art isn't maybe the only, the best right. thing. We're, but,
0: we're using therapy in a different way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, um, you know, one thing I think about, you know, cause I, I, I've been seeing a therapist for, you know, many years now and, um, And I think that what is common about the therapy process uh, and the art process, at least the way that I engage with art, is that it is really a process of getting to know yourself. Mm, Um, I remember when I was talking to Jerry Takigawa, he uh, has worked with the Center for Photographic Arts in Carmel, uh, developing their Pi Labs programs. So Pi being photography, oh gosh, what is it? Photography... Uh, innovation experience, uh, something like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but he said this line that I just really loved, which was that you can't be a better artist than you are a person. Hmm. And I just thought that is so right. Yeah, it is. Um, cause it's really like it, it, if you don't know anything about yourself, like how can you, how can you express anything about yourself? You know, yeah, oh yeah. So Actually, you know, I I find in general that understanding things helps me be okay with it. Like one of the things that I I find with my sort of interpersonal interactions a lot of times, I used to get really upset with people for behaving in ways that I thought were wrong. Hmm. And it's not to say that I necessarily think that everybody is just doing things okay all the time now. But what I find is that, if I understand why people do the things they do, I'm not as angry about it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the same thing with myself that a lot of these photographs when they start because I tend to shoot very instinctively that I know I'm having some kind of emotional pull towards the image and towards making the image. I don't necessarily know why at first, but oftentimes, you know, particularly with the family pictures and then with my um my landscape hometown pictures Mm -hmm. that with those two series, when they started, I was in the, I was being gripped by these emotions that I didn't know how to process. And I didn't know where to put them. Mm -hmm. And they were just very, very acute and distressing. But I found that by the time I was done, especially like with the, the, it forgets you series by the time I finished making that book and like was able to hold the book in my hands By that point, I still recognized the feeling in it, but I didn't feel it in the same way anymore, that the process of putting the images into something physical and going through that years-long process, by the time I was done, it sort of transmuted the emotion into something that was easier to hold on to, you know, like both literally and figuratively. Are you proud of that, the book, because of that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if nothing else, it was useful to me, right. you know, and, and it's always my hope that in making the images and sharing them with people, that's something that, that a lot of times the most common criticism I get in reviews, uh, especially about my family pictures are like, why are you showing these to people? Mm-hmm. You know, like this, this seems like a really nice personal thing for you to have for yourself, but why are you showing them to people? Like, why should we care? Yeah, that's that's I think the I mean sometimes people just come straight out and say that, but I think that's the implication <laughs> right. most of the time. And for me, if the question is why should you care? My opinion is if you don't care then you shouldn't care, right. you know? Right. But it's but the thing is it's that, not for you. <laughs> right. For me I I'm hoping like I know that for me making the photographs was sort of emotionally useful. And I know that at least some of the people that see the pictures are able to relate to them and have a very powerful emotional experience on their own. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing that I'm always sort of hoping to be able to achieve. And it's such a difficult fleeting thing, but like if I can make an image and have it be something that someone recognizes themselves in, or it helps them process something just to know that somebody else felt the same way. Then that's like something like a service, you know. Like mm. that's something I think that the art can do, you know. But it it does require that you you have that first, right? Like, and if you don't have it, then you're just not going to see it. That's fine. I used to get really upset about that, but like I just realized, you know, it's like, it's okay, you know. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, it's that's, that's healthy because I think a lot of people still have issues with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not like totally Zen about it all the time, <laughs> right. you know, especially when somebody is, you know, getting in my face in a review or like, oh. you know, sometimes people are really nice in reviews and sometimes people are very rude, right. but right. you know, at least afterwards at this point, I'm able to be a little more chill about it. Right. So I'm curious, you're, excuse me, you're talking about dealing with the
0: emotions through the art. Mm-hmm. Um, is that similarly why you started
1: being more of an activist yeah I mean, I started becoming an activist because it was uh you know, the end of twenty sixteen and I was feeling in crisis mm-hmm. and I w- was feeling like i like something needed to happen, somebody needed to do something, and I was just looking around and i couldn't what I started was like I want to join a group, I want to like look around and join a group, and I'm going to get off my couch and actually help be a part of the solution mm mm-hmm. And I looked around, and there just wasn't anybody that I could find in in my community, in my city, that was doing what I wanted to be doing. Part of that was that I didn't know how to look at the time, because a lot of these groups sure. have been around for a long time. But part of it, too, was that I think a lot of us had, you know, sort of a more, you know, laissez-faire kind of attitude about these things. Oh, it'll just work itself out kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah looking around and not finding anything that somebody else had started that I could participate in. I thought, well, if nobody else is doing this, then I guess I got to do it. So, (laughs) so what'd you do? Um, you know, I started a, a local, I don't know exactly how to describe it, a grassroots organization, a a grassroots chapter of an organization, Mm you know, we get together and, and do stuff like, uh, it's funny. Like I've gotten to know the activist community in San Diego pretty well. And we all sort of have our little areas of expertise now. And the stuff that I tend to do tends to be on like tracking, um, legislation and Mm. doing policy research, holding our elected officials accountable. And like, I meet with my Congressman about once a month and tell him all the things that he did that we liked and tell him all the things that he did that we don't like. And, You know, try and convince him to do better in the future, and you know we've been doing that for a couple years now. And he he knows who we all are, and you know he he doesn't always do what we want him to do, but we've gotten to the point where he knows that where I I know that at least he's thinking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, at least we're he knows what we're going to tell him. You know, other people that I work with, you know, they'll they'll be the ones organizing big marches and rallies or letter writing campaigns. I know a lot of people who are working. On, on different cross-border initiatives, and you know, trying to help the f- detainees and families that have been separated. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so many things to work on, and it feels a little like overwhelming sometimes because it's more than any one person can do. Yeah, yeah. it's an interesting thing. You know, I, this isn't exactly what you asked, but it's something I think about a lot: is art as activism. Mm-hmm. It's something that I've talked to several people on my show about because a lot of the people that I talk to on my show. Um, Whether they be visual artists or literary artists, you know, we'll we'll have work that is based around identity or based around topics that are either inherently political or have become politicized. You know, we talk sometimes about what the art can achieve and whether art counts as activism. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will say things. Like, I remember I was just talking with Matika Wilbur, who, if you're not familiar with her work, I don't know if all the listeners might be or might not, she's a a Native American photographer who is doing a portrait project where she's trying to visit every tribe in the United States and make portraits. Mm. Um, Did you interview
0: her in your your podcast? Yeah, yeah. Good, so now people can go there. Yeah, yeah, it was episode
1: 84. It came out a couple weeks ago. There you go. And um, she was saying very adamantly that she's not an activist. But then her work is all about creating positive representations of native people that don't exist that cuz like all of what we think of as you know indians comes to us from either stereotypes or or from history, you know, and so, false history. <laughs> yeah. False. And it's not, but it's not like necessarily engaging with these are people who are still alive now and who mm-hmm. still have life right. now. And yeah. where is that representation? Mm-hmm. And so I was talking, I I sort of pushed back a little bit. I said, well, like, you know, you are creating things that these conversations that you're creating are expanding our awareness of things. Like to me, that does feel very activist. Right. Her point was just that, you know, there's a difference between raising awareness and you know being the people who are like lobbying a legislator or chaining themselves to a pipeline or something like that, and that all of that needs to happen that like if you only have people making art that it's not going to accomplish those other things right. and I think that's a good point. you know he, the ways that we understand each other and the world are so based on story and narrative, and if we don't have somebody setting that narrative, we don't have somebody expanding what we think of as the story of the world, or the story of America, or the story of this city, or this place, or mm-hmm. this person, then, like, we don't know what, what even to reach for. We don't know what the bounds of, of our real, quote-unquote, real activism ought to be, and what we're pushing for. Sure. It's only through, th- through stories that, you know, like, for example, I, you know, I, I grew up, and I experienced racism as a child. And so there were a lot of ways that I felt like I understood racism and how it works in the United States. You know, like my, I have living family members who were interned during World War II. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, very Im- important story to understand, but it's just one part of it. And, you know, there were, you know, the place where I grew up had almost no black people in it, like anywhere in the whole, like, county, basically, you know? but certainly not in the town that I lived in. Sure. And so, like, there were a lot of ways that I didn't understand what kinds of challenges black people face that are different from what Japanese people face. Right. Oh, yeah. I didn't understand that until I was in my 30s and started being able to read these stories, and it's the art that really mm-hmm. allowed that access. Sure. The
0: education, and, and really the stories are the easiest way to educate, I think.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. the sto- a good story isn't telling you what to think. A good mm-hmm. story isn't like trying to teach you a lesson. It's just showing you something that's real. Right. And if you're faced with the truth with 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 something that is authentic and true, there's not a whole lot you can do, you know. You can reject it, but that's your choice, you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's that's an interesting point. You wrote a piece about how
0: how art, well, visual art falls short when it comes to activism. It resonates with me is what you're talking about how the the storytelling is, is really the key there. And it has been for me in my life. Like Mm -hmm. the more I'm educated by hearing people's stories about their life or their family or their past, or um, the more, you know, it just opens your mind to other things that, you know, you may not have had exposure to. I grew up in a place where there was, you know, we had, we had native American and white people and that was it. Like there Mm -hmm. wasn't anyone else, you know? So the diversity was very low. However, it was the stories that that kind of like educated me mm-hmm. from a distance, you know. Yeah, and in, in in culture, even in uh, media, had a lot to do with my understanding of different cultures. And we live in the world now of Instagram, and where things are cur- heavily curated. And the media was the same way. Growing up, it was like it was heavily curated. It's so only, you know, it's like you said, you only got like a little teeny snapshot of it without really hearing the full story, you know, mm-hmm. and all sides. And I remember being frustrated in high school with my history book because i knew it was like i said earlier it's this false history because it was only showing one side of the story and and the the other side was was always so like sort of brushed over you'd get like you know one account from somebody Mm -hmm. and the rest of the book was on the other side you know (laughs) right so i got i got really frustrated growing up with the history books and my of course you know, immature way of dealing with that was just not to do with the work, you know. <laughs> like I'm not doing your assignments because I don't agree with what you're teaching me, you know, which is obviously not the best way for me to <laughs> to approach the situation. I'm getting bad grades because I was mad at the, what they were teaching me. But, you know, the the better way would be to to be um, more proactive and be um, yeah. educate people yourself, you know, yeah. instead of playing the victim.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things too, you know, it, it, it is the point you make about media being very curated, especially back then, is a good one because a lot of times these stories were available if you were able to find them, but it's right. a question of whether or not they were presented to you, you know, like a lot of these stories you know, like Toni Morrison's been writing stuff for decades, mm-hmm. but like that wasn't what got covered in my high school English classes, you know, like right. we were reading Shakespeare, and like Shakespeare's great, but there's You know, there are other things that are relevant to our American existence besides just Shakespeare, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's one of the things that I'm really grateful for this time, because even though, like, I am exhausted all the time because I'm just working myself ragged on... Like, oh, I got to get ready for this meeting. I got to research this bill that's going to be voted on in Congress Mm. next week. I got to do this thing. I got to do that thing. And there's always, you know, if you're paying attention to the news, there's always just another thing that just completely sucks the life out of you, like every day, right? Right, right. But I am also, in the past five years, I've read more books, seen more photographs that I would never have seen when I was a kid you know, stories that whether they're newly published or whether they're just newly getting attention now, Mm. like I have gotten to learn so much in such a short amount of time. And I'm just really grateful for that, you know, it's one of the things I've been, you know, a lot of the writers at this conference who I most want to connect with, many of whom I've had on my show. But even if I haven't, you know, if I've just read their books, what I value about them and their work is that, you know like for example in past two years i think i've read probably 20 books that were written by asian americans Mm. and that is in the previous 30 years of my life i had maybe read four right you know that's been an incredibly valuable experience to me and not one that i got to have before sure yeah also now you have a double layer there though because you're you have a venue
0: where you're actually able to have conversations with these people too. So it's, it's beyond just the intaking of the story or the narrative. And then also let's talk about it, you know, yeah, which is, it's great. It's a great venue for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's been, it's been really gratifying to get to sort of peel back the layers of, of these things. You know, one of the things with, with these, I don't like to think of them as interviews. I like to think of them as conversations. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to people for my show, I do like to focus on the work. I don't usually like to sort of hash out the details of the work of, of like, you know, I might, for example, if I'm talking to a writer, I might want to talk about a particular line or something, mm-hmm. right? If I'm talking to a photographer, I might, you know, mention a particular image or technique or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I always want to get at the why of it, you know, like what was it that motivated you to do this? And But also I find that when you just, if you just come out and ask somebody like, why'd you do that? You know, then (laughs) that's, you know, it tends not to be, you know, a very interesting conversation, but it's, it might give you a canned answer. Yeah. Yeah. But if you can kind of say like, oh, I saw this in there and you know, what was, was that, you know, what experience did you have that sort of led to you putting that in there or like, did I, or was I wrong in seeing that? Or you know, sometimes that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. You Perspective. Know? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's nice. What what I've enjoyed about the podcast, your podcast, was that that it did feel conversational to me and that you were actually having the conversation instead of this you know this podcast range from like a bunch of people sitting around a table chatting and it's almost like an inside joke half the time and it's mm-hmm. real hard to like have it, you know, like actually get involved as a as a listener. And then you have other podcasts where it's more like question answer or even a little more monolog you know, where it could be an interview, but one person's just really saying like a few sentences. <laughs> um, I've appreciate personally the way you the really you dive into um, not just the subject, but the person, you know, and what they're interested Thank in. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I found it inspiring to, you know, when I started doing my research for what, the format I was going to use for the podcast. And, you know, I, when I landed on yours, it was um, the most tangible for me to, cause I was so invested in, um, and really a lot of that was the people you were interviewing I was invested in those people. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to hear what those people had to say. And then, you know, listening to a conversation, I forget, Hey, I'm listening to a podcast, you know? <laughs> which is great because if you forget, you know, then it's like, you know, nobody's broke that fourth wall. Is there a fourth wall in podcasting?
1: <laughs> that should be like a, Blog entry or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I think that you do a really good job of maintaining the conversation as well. You know, Um, and I think that I have made such a study of (laughs) different different (laughs) interviewers styles. You know, I'm always trying to learn how to do a better job. Mm -hmm. But I do think that um, one thing that uh, every great interview has in common is that there is a real rapport between Mm. both people. Sure. And that can come about in a lot of different ways. Like, you know, I've noticed that on your show, a lot of people that you talk with, you have sort of a prior relationship with, Mm -hmm. and that um, you can really feel that, I think, you know, when you're talking with people. Uh, You know, for me, those are often the ones where I don't have to do anything to establish the rapport, you know, if I already know the person. right? What I feel like I can do on my show is part of this might be a holdover from when I was first starting out and not only did uh, was my show brand new. And so it didn't have any track record that I could show anybody, mm-hmm. but also I had even fewer, like my CV was even shorter, right? Like, and <laughs> you know, and nobody knew anything about me as a mm-hmm. photographer or as a writer right. to the extent that people do now. I mean, I'm still, you know, emerging, but I have more of a track record as the show that I can point to now. But I started off being like, well, I can't, offer people like a huge audience to exp- of exposure, right? It's not like mm-hmm. I, having somebody on my show, it's not like that's going to make anybody's career. Right. Um, and if they are bigger deal than me, which is basically true 100% of the time, <laughs> it always feels like they're doing me a favor. Mm-hmm. Like so, I really feel like people are doing me a giant favor. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. If the main thing I can offer them is like an hour of pleasant conversation, mm-hmm. You know, and that to me means, you know, really listening and really showing up, really engaging and being in the moment. I do a ton of prep for every conversation. Mm -hmm. And usually I will have five to ten pages of notes. I at most ever cover like one page of notes because, you know, I just I want to have something to keep it rolling. But most of the time I just sort of get caught up in the conversation flow. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that that,
0: that helps. And it, it's good to be prepared because if there's always, and you've interviewed so many people, there's all these personalities and how, how engaging they're going to be on yeah. their end, you know, and how much they're going to talk about. So yeah, I've noticed that too. You have to sometimes, you know, ask a lot more questions to some people. and Yeah. And, but, you know, and you mentioned that I have that rapport because I know a lot of my um, guess and I think that that was kind of I had to do it that way so I'm comfortable mm-hmm. enough to actually have the conversation the way I think it should go. I appreciate that you notice that. I think that it's important for for me to have rapport and, and I think yeah. I think that's hard to get. You can't always get it with people. Yeah, yeah? And also, I also mean, I'll uh,
1: say I'm I'm trying to learn from you as well. Oh. <laughs>
0: Well, I have three, so, <laughs> but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, anyways, um, we are at time here, so I think that's a good place for us to leave off. All right. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Before no, I we... just, I really appreciate
1: you uh, taking the time to talk with me.
0: No, I'm glad yeah. you're in Portland. This yeah. worked out really good for me. It's been a treat. <laughs> so. Thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us for tape number seven. It was such a pleasure to chat with a fellow podcaster that has been doing this stuff for quite a while now. Although because of that, I was admittedly nervous to sit down with Mike, but he was such a gracious guest, the whole podcast thing just disappeared, and it was just a nice conversation. So since this recording, Mike has actually launched a new podcast project called Likewise Fiction. Likewise Fiction is dedicated to sharing outstanding short fiction from writers of underrepresented communities. But let's have Mike tell you more about it. Here's the teaser for the show.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Sakasagawa, writer, photographer, and podcaster, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to my new show, Likewise Fiction, Adverse Fiction Podcast. I love stories. I love all kinds of stories, really, narrative in just about any form, but there's something particularly special about stories read aloud and read well. Reading stories aloud is more than just entertaining. It's alive and intimate. It's a point of connection between two people. Think about reading with your kids or the times your own parents or teachers read to you. For me, these are some of my most treasured memories. Unfortunately for a lot of us, we haven't necessarily gotten to experience stories featuring characters that represented experiences familiar to us, or that were written by people like us. And that's especially true for women, non-binary people, people of color, and LGBTQIA people. And so that's what we're doing here on Likewise Fiction. On each new episode, I'll be reading an outstanding short story by a writer from one of these underrepresented communities. I'll be featuring stories across all different genres, in different styles and voices, Stories that I love and that I hope you'll love too.
0: Sounds intriguing, right? So Mike just launched this project in October and there's already a few episodes to indulge in. I personally just finished Crow's Eye by Sarah Halliwell and it was fantastic. Thanks again for tuning in to the Diffusion Tapes. Check out the show notes to dive deeper into anything we discussed on this tape with Mike. Also, if you feel inclined, I'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Speaking of great radio voices, in my next tape, I discover the multi-talented Aline Smithson also has a passion for dance.
1: I actually was on some teen after-school sort of, you know, dance, uh, music programs where like bands would come in and I did some dancing on the scaffolding behind wow. them.
0: And this was like broadcast.
1: Yes, but only locally. (laughs)